Hey everybody, welcome back to The Big Show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode 73, and as always, we are your hosts, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. I'm here and ready to go. <laughs> and I'm Pastor Don Riley. As promised this week, and who knows how many weeks following, we're going to be <laughs> spending it with our beloved Dr. Norman Nagel. We're going to go deep in the vaults for this one. We're going to go all the way back to Dr. Nagel's um, graduate dissertation from 1961, I believe it is. And it is on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper in Luther. Dr. Nagel, um, professor, taught at, he was at Westfield House, he was at mm -hmm. Valparaiso, and then from yeah. Seminary St. Louis. Correct. I had him for his last class before he had a stroke, mm. which landed him in the nursing home. Where he is, he resides still. So that was a graduate class at uh, Concordia Fort Wayne Seminary, or Theological Seminary. Nice. Yeah. So I actually had the benefit. I was thankful for that. Mm -hmm. Even if it was just one class that I was sitting in on, uh, you know, yeah. kind of get to know him personally that way. His sermon, his book of sermons, his manuscripts are available for purchase through Concordia Publishing House, I believe. Correct. And the CD of his chapel sermons is available through Logia's website. Correct. Yeah. Right. And there, there's some overlap, although I think there's unique sermons in each that they didn't have audio yeah. for, and then, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So those are available. And then if you have super secret squirrel friends, you have things like his doctoral dissertation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, friends. So, yeah, thank you, friends. We're going to jump forward in the dissertation to the threat of works Christ subverted where, again, Dr. Nagel is studying Luther's sacramental theology, the development of Luther's sacramental theology, specifically in relation to the incarnation of Christ. And at this point, then, he's covered the early Psalms lectures. He's discussed uh, what Dr. Luther does in his Hebrews lectures on this topic. He goes through Dr. Luther's sermons and some theses that Dr. Luther formulated on this topic. But then finally, this is around about 1520-ish that we'll be covering uh, in this chapter, the threat of works Christ subverted. And we thought that that would be easy, an easy entry point, that we don't have to really discuss a lot of what Luther was wrestling with, at least the first mm, five to seven years of his lectures, at least from his first Psalms lectures, so approximately 1512, 1513, up through 1517, 18 in Heidelberg. Yeah, because it's so um, steeped in medieval theology. Um, right. And and philosophy. Right. And, and so by 1520, in my opinion, he's he's humming along now, theologically, intellectually, exegetically. He's matured where he has discarded what he finds uh, unnecessary from the medieval, late medieval uh, theological traditions, and then taken what is what is useful in this cause or the service of justification by faith alone in the Reformation. So we're going to dive in here and see where we get. So Dr. Nagel writes, Luther was reluctant to express the matters that troubled him in the pulpit. Their expression came first in his study and with the men of the university. In the pulpit, he strove to bring to positive effect what lay to hand. The matters that troubled him, he hoped to work through in discussion and debate with his fellows. He was dumbfounded by the naked demand of the quote, new doctrine, simply to submit to papal authority. His case was denied hearing and debate. Cajetan only, Cajetan's only answer to his appeal for scripture was the demand to retract. Hmm. 
He yet agreed to Milititz's appeal to refrain from controversy. The continued attacks upon him released him from this undertaking. <laughs> yeah, they made it an issue. <laughs> right. I'm not going to swing first, but I will swing second. I will swing in retaliation. Mm -hmm. Silence would be the betrayal of what meant everything to him. When the restraint of his own reluctance and obedience was overcome, and his respect for the princes of the church undermined, his defense burst from him like a torrent. Yeah, and that's the important word there is defense. Right. And, and for Luther, I, I know Nagel's going to get to it, but the, the defense is the gospel. Because that's right, the, the apologia. Yeah, he's making uh, a defense for the hope that is in him. That if if you're going to attack, <laughs> you can attack me personally, um, and my like, oh, I don't know, personal character or the job that I do. Mm -hmm. um, but if you attack the confession that is faithful, um, right. I have to defend it. Well, I think that's a great point, at least at the outset, is that when, in my opinion, when Luther is at his worst, he is attacking the person, mm -hmm. the yeah. theologian. Yeah. When he's at his best, he's attacking the confession. He's making an apology for his faith, for his confession of the faith. And, and in any of his works, I think, um, but your favorite, Bondage of the Will, I mean, you see both. Yeah. And right. some of that is the, also the, uh, what do you want to say, the genre of what he's writing. Where yeah, it is for sure. What we hear but, as a personal attack is just, or name calling, you know, it's just part of the, part of that uh, genre. It's part of the, yeah, it's part of the debate tradition that was in extent at that time. It's kind of like adding a curse word, you know, just to, for emphasis. Well, yeah, Eck the Direct or something like that, right? Or, or, you know, Luther was a master of taking a person's name and then twisting it to mean something not good, mm. you know, in a very vulgar way. Yeah. And again, that was just part of the rhetoric of the day. But I think in the present tense, to your point too, we're, we too often jump to judge or criticize a person as a person without really knowing anything about that person rather than separating that person's ideas or their confession from their person. Yeah. I talk about this all the time in relation to people that I teach or I train with is that because I don't really know most of the people that I that I train with and I don't know personally most of the people I teach. Mm -hmm. They're students. I see them one hour a day, two hours a day at the most. All I can judge them on is their behavior in the gym. And and so I have to make clear that I'm not judging you as a person. I'm judging your behavior. Yeah. I'm making that distinction. Yeah. In the church, I think it's very similar in the sense of if I don't know you as a person, regardless of the gossip that's been circulated about you, I can only judge your confession. So Correct. therefore, if I'm going to critique anything or attack anything, let it be your confession. Well, and I think you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we're criticized for being kind of, what, keeping people at arm's length as pastors mm -hmm. in particular. Sure. Like, you're not like, not being friendly, I guess, is how it would, mm. how it would be said. And, like, do you realize that um, if I get too close, then I I can't be objective about your confession because it's going to be conditioned by like, do I want you to still be my friend? Can I say this and, right. and retain you that way too? Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I think you and you probably do the same thing I do, which is I say, I can't really be friends with people that I pastor, but I can be friendly. Okay. We can, yeah. we can be acquaintances. I'll show up at your birthday party. I'll show up for, you know, if you give me an invitation to something, I'll, I'll certainly show up. But as far as friendship goes, that's very, as you pointed out, that's difficult because I do have to remain detached to a certain extent and I do have to remain objective and capable of observing you rather than allowing my perception of you to color. Let's say, again, you you sin and you come to me with this confession of sin, but we're buddies. We're camping buddies or hunting buddies. It's going to be more difficult for me to 
counsel you, to call you to repent, to to listen and hear that receive that confession in a way that I would if it were somebody that I didn't have a personal relationship right. with. Yeah, and you see this too. I kind of have an unspoken rule, although I've told my family this, is that I'm I'm not going to be your pastor, right? Right. Um, not necessarily my immediate family. As as a father to my children, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the parallel or the the overlap of work of a pastor, you know, to parishioner and father to children, they're actually mm-hmm. very comparable in a lot of they're ways. They're parallel playing for sure in the yeah. same sandbox. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, extended family, no, no, thank you, because you're my family, and right. for me to to I can make I think I can make the distinction. I just don't know if they can. I would agree with that a hundred percent. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we're we're good for funerals. People mm-hmm. always want us to show up and, and preach at funerals, or they want us to pray before a meal. Actually, that's my, but, one of my rules: is I'm not going to preach a family funeral. Right. I did once, and then I learned my lesson. I did. I did just a couple weeks ago. A little yeah. bit of one, and I'm like, I just, I actually just read First um, Corinthians and just right. let it be that because right. Well, it's a matter of vocation, and it's a matter of office, mm-hmm. right? And like you said, I can distinguish between the pastoral office and the office, like the fourth commandment. Mm -hmm, Sure. Not only my relationship to my own children as father, but also my relationship then to my broader family. Mm -hmm. They cannot. Right. And therefore, they're too fluid in their disregard for the offices, Mm. even if I explain it to them, whereas I'm very, hmm... I stand firm on the distinction. I was going to say rigid, way. but yeah. <laughs> Rigid's fine. Yeah, rigid. Or you defined. Know, I, I think that's maybe a Because good as you and I both know, being a dad, and that being our first vocation there, when our kids are in church and we're quote-unquote pastor, especially when they're little, little kids, mm-hmm. they never yell pastor from the choir loft. They yell daddy to remind you. That's God's way of saying, hey, just, just in case you forgot for the moment yeah. that this is your vocation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's what's going on with Luther is that, you know, he's not he's trying not to undermine the offices that have been given, whether it's to like uh who's this Miltitz guy? Um yeah. or even Kaizen, um or his princes. But right. if they're going to um reject the gospel or or, or actually cause offense to the gospel, mm-hmm. you know, he has to obey God rather than men. Right. And again, Miltitz was one of Luther's early colleagues who then turned on him mm. and condemned him. I don't know his story. Yeah. Mm. Again, one of those monastic relationships. But we won't go down that rabbit trail. I don't want to geek out. So back to the back <laughs> to Nagel then. Born reformers are eager to find what can be discarded. Let me repeat that. Mm-hmm. Born reformers are eager to find what can be discarded. Without sin, right? Without sin. In the words of Epictetus, be indifferent about indifferent things. And that is easy, but not simple. No, because we all have the things that we love that um, we, we don't want to live without the disregard. Yeah, right. And so for Luther, this is really, especially from those early Psalms lectures through Heidelberg, and then fifteen twenty twenty one, when he writes the Freedom of the Christian Man, the Magnificat Commentary, and on. I mean, so many, so many great works and treatises. He is in every one of those working through. Well, what can we discard from late medieval Roman Catholic theology and scholasticism? But what must we retain? Yeah, and I think so. Uh, that's an important distinction. He's not an anarchist. He's not like burn it all down. No, he's actually very conservative. Yes, as Nagel notes in his chapter on Luther's sermons, is that Luther never once preaches anything from the pulpit that he is not one hundred rock solid certain is true. He mm-hmm. doesn't use the pulpit to work out these questions. No, that's an interesting point. I mean, what if you're going to cause people uh, to doubt, 
you want them not to doubt salvation, right? Right. But right. but to doubt their own uh, worthiness or you know their own personal identity status right. apart from Christ. Well, and as an example, then he will preach on indulgences and purgatory after he no longer actually believes there is a biblical teaching, at least as far as the Roman Church teaches it, on mm -hmm. those topics. Why does he continue to mention it then? For the sake of the hearer. Yeah. As you pointed out, he doesn't want them to leave in confusion and doubt about their salvation. And if indulgences, hail, indulgence sales and purgatory are tied to that as appendages, his question is, how do I then discard these things in a way that does not separate this person from the comfort of the gospel in Jesus Christ? If you want to see a really great example of his conservatism, see how he critiques um, Karlstadt, right? And um, yeah. And the radical reformation that happened in Wittenberg while right. Luther was in uh, at the Wartburg. Yeah. He comes Against out of hiding, he puts his life in jeopardy because it and it's, it is over almost entirely in different things. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like you're going way too hard in the paint here, uh, and you're causing offense um, to to tender consciences, basically. Right, and so yes, be eager to find what can be discarded, but do not be eager. Basically, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Of recognize that it's easy, especially for young pastors, it's easy in your eagerness to get in the pulpit and rail against that thing that you believe can be discarded at the expense of your hearers who are your flock, who are yeah. under your care. Yeah, I mean, we talk, we've talked at length, I think, uh, on many occasions on this show about the practice of confirmation being discarded by mm -hmm. um, the Lutheran reformers. Not so much Luther, I think, but Luther was critical of it. And then uh, but it's certainly out the window right away in the first generation. It doesn't come back for a couple hundred years. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, during rationalism primarily, I think pietism too, right? A little it, bit, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Um, that doesn't mean that we should just disregard it in the same way. Like, for example, the risk would be to say, well, now catechesis, you know, teaching the faith to the young, mm -hmm. uh, that's no longer necessary. And you're like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But you could see how that impression could be given. Exactly. When we fall into the trap of thinking in very binary terms, mm. it's either this or that, and there's nothing in between. Yeah, that's when I think we get into trouble. Let's say let's let's retain that thing called confirmation, uh, but let's just shift it a little bit in its purpose. Right. Let's ask what can we discard? Yeah, that is. Actually or how can we a, use this in a more you know effective way? Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. So then back to the book. Luther was no born reformer, and he had no love of discarding. There you go. Mm -hmm. This is shown on the one hand by the slowness with which the ferment within him broke through, and on the other hand by the pent-up energy released <laughs> when that break came. Again, this is yet one of many, many reasons I love Dr. Nagel, is his turn of phrase. Oh, it's, it's almost visual, right? Right, I was going to say, he's obviously talking wineskin language here. Mm -hmm. It cost him a lot to be a reformer. He was no dilettante eager to tidy up whatever details displeased him. It is amazing what can almost be called details for Luther. Communion under one kind and transubstantiation did not so much trouble him. Only when sailing before the wind of 1520 does he come out against them, and then none too categorically. Private masses could be rightly observed. He was himself still celebrating private mass in the Wartburg. <laughs> Communion under one kind was the sort of thing that greatly exercised the Bohemians, or even the lesser things of the moral irregularities of some clerics and popes. Nothing of this sort could ever have made a reformer of Luther. 
He became a reformer because his life depended on it. What made him a reformer was the rejection of what he had come to know of Christ as his entire Savior, Christ not remote and judging in retributive righteousness, but Christ who became our brother and died for our sins. And from this event, by way of the gospel and its sacraments, come the forgiveness and righteousness which he freely gives to sinners, in which they do nothing to earn or effect, but can only receive, that is, believe. Wonderful. What a great right? confession right there. I was going to say, that's, that's an opening salvo for a good sermon right there, boy. And also, one of the things that uh, Dr. Nagel does that uh, we're not so great at is he's assertive. So yes. So he says, here's what is, and he, but he also then backs it up with, right. look at, now, uh, I know what you've heard about Luther, but let's actually look at what he did. Right. And by 1520, he's still doing a lot of the things that Augsburg Confession rejects, for example. Right, right. Yeah, flat out rejects. It's mm -hmm. not at that, it's not really the main thing at this point. No. Because it's, again, after 500 years plus after the fact, it's easy to make of Luther the reformer. Mm. Or Luther the evangelical reformer. The bull in the, the fire. What is it, the, the boar in the vineyard. Yeah, mm. the boar in the vineyard. It's easy to, to, to lionize Luther in that way. But as with everything, he is a human being, and therefore there is nuance. And there's also inconsistency. <laughs> what? Yes, These people are tragically inconsistent. Um, what, they, like they change throughout their lifetime? They or do. They change. They metamorphosize. They say different things in different contexts? What? And so, the, even in 1525, as we know, it, it took Luther four to five years before he finally said to his people, okay, this is the baptismal rite. This is how we're going to do it now. You've had enough time. But even then, he was still getting pushed back. After four to five years of teaching and catechizing, people were still saying, mm, we're not really comfortable with this new, all these innovations, Dr. Luther. Yeah, it is It is true that you want to be patient with the people. Uh, right. Teach, 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 wait. Um, and then at some point, I, I do think, you know, time has to be up. Sure. <laughs> you know, if you're yeah. talking about the gospel, especially, or the way the gospel is communicated, or not right. communicated, as the case may be. Right. Um, yeah, there is going to be an end to it. At some point, yeah. we've ta we've taught, oh, now it's time to make the move. Right. You know, we've done the preparation, let's go. Well, there's a difference between naivety and a kind of stubborn arrogance, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. A stubborn resistance to the gospel and the gifts. Mm. It's like, oh, you don't know the distinction between the indulgent sales and purgatory and the promise of the resurrection and life everlasting. Okay, understandable. It's been generations. Sure. You've you've grown up with this one way of, of understanding. You can't read the Bible. You only have your priest to depend on. Okay, I get it. Okay, now I'm going to teach your kids how to read. We're going to make the Bible publicly available. We're going to be preaching justification by faith alone. It's been five years. Now why are you rejecting this? Oh, for the sake of tradition or for the sake of, well, the, you know, this is the way it has to be kind of. No, I'm sorry. We can't do that anymore. Yeah, enough is enough. Yeah. So then to quote Luther here, you ask where this faith and confidence may be found or where they come from. It is indeed most necessary to know this. In the first place, there can be no doubt that it does not come from your works or merit, but solely from Jesus Christ, freely promised and given. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 through 9, justified through his blood, God reconciled by his son's death. This faith, therefore, does not begin with works, nor do they make it. It springs and flows from the blood, the wounds, 
and the death of Christ. There you see that God loves you so much that he gives his son for you. Thus your heart grows glad and full of love toward God. The confidence springs from nothing but favor and love, God's toward you and yours toward God. We never read that the Holy Ghost was given to the one who works, but always to the one who heard the gospel of Christ and the mercy of God. From that same word, faith must spring still today and always and from nowhere else. Hmm. Again, that's just a beautiful paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, that's Dr. Luther at you know, his best. Faith does not begin with works and is not made by works. It springs and it flows from the blood, wounds, and death of Christ. There you go. Or, uh, in 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 precisely defined, the gospel, <laughs> or the gospel. Yeah. And so you see, God loves you in the blood, the death, the wounds, and the death of Christ, and therefore that He gave His Son for you. So now you can be glad and full of love toward God and each other. But again, notice what Luther does here. Once we cut faith and works apart and go, works don't make faith. Now we're actually free to love God and love each other, mm -hmm. not the other way around. Well, because the works then are defined not not by you, um, but right. actually how God loves you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we never read that the Holy Spirit was given to the one who works, but always to the one who heard the gospel. <laughs> and so from that word, faith springs today and always and nowhere else. Yeah. And again, exclusive. We love that with Luther. Yeah. The like, exclusive particles. Nowhere else can faith right. come. Yep cuts off all escape routes it also cuts off all other entry points well and you know it is jesus own word i am the way that right in life no one right. comes to the father but by me right right hmm. there's only yeah there's a sheepfold but it's only got one gate right there's a narrow way or a narrow gate right yeah. right and this is key then is that this is why this language is uncomfortable to us to everybody in luther's generation it made his colleagues uncomfortable mm. and it still continues to because it, there's only one thing you can replace this confession with. Works. That's it. Yeah, and they can be very religious too. I, and I think that's oh, absolutely. That, that's where the where they get very deceitful. Is mm -hmm. uh, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about the power of words and how words that you don't actually believe, but but they can still give you like a sense of comfort. Sure. Uh, like religiousy words, like mm -hmm. you grow up. Uh, it was a Jew speaking, so he grew up praying the Shema, you know. Yeah, and uh, he find or and then he also knew the like the liturgy of uh, for funerals, uh, whatever psalms they pray or whatever liturgical words, and right. just uh, he was just remarking about how how it gave him confidence and comfort, even though he doesn't believe him anymore. You're mm -hmm. like, um, that's that's actually kind of works righteous, right? Of course, it is. Richard Dawkins goes to church. Huh. He's an atheist. Why does he go to church? He loves the Anglican uh, rite. Why? Because as he said, one, it's beautiful. Just aesthetically, it's beautiful. The hymns are beautiful. The music is beautiful. And he says, I'm connected to something that's bigger than myself. So it's kind of powerful, in a, but in a works way, right? Of course, absolutely. It's not faith or trust in the gospel. Right. He doesn't believe a word of what he's singing. He doesn't believe a word of the priest's sermon. He doesn't believe a word of what's read from the Bible. But he does believe in the transcending power, as he would, you know, as they would say, of the music and the fellowship and the sense of being located in this great, we would call it this great cloud of witnesses. Well, and that, that was one of the uh, points that 
that this podcast was making as well is that there's power when many people speak in unison. Right. And the point was still, but it doesn't matter if they believe it as long as they say right. it together. Right. Well, this is the power of like a drum circle or anything mm. where you're chanting some mantra. How many people do we know in California, right? Who sit in a yoga circle and they chant some mantra. They don't even understand what the word means, but they can self-hypnotize. Isn't that something? Right. Right. Yeah. And it's another kind of, it is another kind of uh, work, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because it's self-appointed, self-defined. Um, right. Yeah. So to wrap up this introduction by Dr. Nagel, he writes, here is the heart of the matter from the overgrown sermon von den guten Werken. Overgrown. <laughs> A little critique. <laughs> Good works. There is enough here to carry Luther through. Rob him of this Christ and all is lost. When he learnt to his distress that there was no place allowed for the discussion and preaching of this, the Reformation began in earnest. There are prior points where the opposition was faced, and the Mass was not the point of departure for the Reformer. But it is that point in theology, and specifically in the understanding of Christ, where the basic issue between God and man is most clearly disclosed. Not only then is the Eucharist a touchstone, but it also provides a better concentrate of what Luther stood for than the more circumscribed studies and the great watchwords. These also gather into themselves his regard for Christ and the way God saves. But in radiant vividness, none surpasses the Lord's Supper. It's an interesting timeline then um, mm -hmm. that Dr. Nagel's pointing out here, is that the Supper is not in view at the beginning, or the Mass as he calls it. Right, no. Yeah, it, that it's a secondary thing. And he again referred to communing in both kinds, right, as an example of that. Or, yeah. or, or even transubstantiation, the, the philosophical uh, become doctrine. Um, right, he'll let he, it lay. He, he doesn't yeah. have a big problem with it. But, but he is specifically going after um, the doctrine of works that is being taught. Mm -hmm. in, in Yeah, which inevitably leads him then to become much more definitive on in his sacramental theology. Well, I think we see, you know, it's connected to justification, obviously, because are we talking about the merit of Christ or our merit? Right. Um, but then we, uh, rightly, as Melanchthon will do in the Augsburg Confession, you know, that does spin out then in all of the practices of the church. Yes. Well, to simplify it, maybe, maybe oversimplify it even, but is that anywhere that Luther encounters the language of sacrifice mm -hmm. in relation to salvation and not in relation to vocation alone, and this is the the distinction between matters of salvation and matters of, let's say, vocation in relation to your neighbor. Right. Is that in matters of salvation, there is no sacrifice. It's all sacramental. It's God's service to us, not our offerings to God. In relation to our neighbor, yes, that's the language we're going to use. It's sacrificial. That is, love is sacrificial. Mm -hmm. So for Luther, what he untangles is we just have to simply keep these things distinct. When it comes to our neighbor, we can talk sacrificially. As Christ sacrificed himself for us, we will sacrifice Absolutely. ourselves for our neighbor. Yeah. In relation to salvation, it's Christ and Christ alone, and it's Christ for us, and Christ works for us, and our works have no place there. So our, the language of sacrifice has no place on that side of things. <laughs> but this is also the nature then of all religions. Right. All religions are at base sacrificial because they all have to do with our works. Yeah, and they'll say that they hold to um, the same teaching as Jesus, you know, that um, what you know, what is necessary according to the law that you love God and love your neighbor, right? And, and they'll exactly. say that, um, but for them, it's all sacrifice, personal mm -hmm. sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
so that the love of God is not received, but it's given. Right. And this is ultimately why Christ as example falls apart for him then. Because mm-hmm. really it's not Christ as example in the sense of faith, but rather faith is a work. Christ's works then become our works. Uh, Christ's piety becomes our piety. His prayer discipline becomes our prayer discipline. And it falls apart because it doesn't. It just denigrates to, you just got to do what Jesus did and you'll be fine. And it, I, I don't know about you, but you never get there. That's the other thing. It actually becomes no. a law to you. Jesus right. becomes a law to you, a new right. lawgiver by way of example. It's like, right. I don't pray the way that he does. <laughs> right. I don't, I'm well, not faithful yeah. in my vocation the way that he is. Right. Hmm. Which comes back to the Lord's Supper because what we're really driving at then is the two natures of Christ, fully mm-hmm. God and fully man, and then the basically the two natures of the Lord's Supper. 100% bread and wine, 100% blood and our body and blood under the bread and wine. Right. And then the emphasis being all for you. Right. And the simultaneity then of the Christian life, that I am both sin, sinner and yet righteous in Christ simultaneously. Hmm. As Christ is God and man, uh, we are right. in Christ and sinner. Right. Hmm. So the Nagel continues, what Luther now says of the Mass is basically an exposition of what he said in the lecture on Hebrews. It is the culmination of the movement from general attributes, gospel and faith, to specific promising and imparting words received with their content by specific faith. The more dispersed and blurred procedures fall behind. Hmm. The verba are testamentum, which means full weight for Christ's death and the forgiveness of sins. And this is key, by the way, for mm-hmm. the present tense, because Reformed theology has become so prevalent in, well, just all American Christianity in general. It's covenant versus testament. And especially in the last 20 or 30 years, this has been poo-pooed by lots of people who want to argue that testament and covenant are essentially saying the same thing. Not for Luther. Not for Luther, no. no. The verba, the word, is testamentum. That is testament, Jesus' last will and testament. Why does this matter? Well, a covenant is an agreement, a contract between two parties that are alive, which is nullified at the death of one or both parties. Mm-hmm. A testament is a last will and testament. It only goes into effect when the person who writes it dies. The death of the testifier, yeah. Right. So if you want to see how this works, go to the parable of the prodigal son. The two brothers go to their dad and say, hey, could you die so that we can get our inheritance? And this is the thing that's missed in the parable so often is that the, the opening salvo is, it starts with a death. Yeah, symbolically though. Yeah, and it's all, and it's all this are both sons that ask for the death. Right, they both go and go. Hey, could you drop dead so that we could get our inheritance? Let's just get this over with a little uh, prematurely. Right, and he does. That's the crazy thing is he goes, okay. So you get the you get the plantation and you get the money, and then off you go. And so for the rest of the parable, the father's dead, socially speaking, relationally mm-hmm. speaking. He dropped dead to his claim. So when the son comes back and wants to beg his father for forgiveness, well, actually his older brother is technically the head of the house. Yep. Because you asked dad to die. So the fact that the, that the dad forgives him on the road, that is the power, that is Jesus saying, in order to forgive sins, I have to die and rise from the dead. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But in the power of my resurrection, this is all new. I love the other point, um, you know, in regards to this testamentum, the broader idea that that Rome, and then you mentioned the reform, I think they do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they move to abstraction from the concrete, yeah. um, direct, you know, very specific word right, of, right. of the testamentum. Well, because it's kind of like uh, the reason that the Pharisees were the only sect of Judaism to fall, to su- survive the, 
the fall of the temple is because they didn't need the temple. Hmm. Because they were about the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments being written in your heart. So they're all about natural law, essentially. Mm -hmm. What they would consider the Torah, yeah. Right, the, the Torah is, in, in, the, in the relation to the Ten Commandments, is my sacrifice is personal. It's a way of life. Yeah, it's a way of life. It's a philosophy in a certain sense mm -hmm. in that yeah. generation. Yeah. Whereas all the other sects of Judaism, their, their, the veracity was relying upon the sacrifice that took place in the temple. Mm -hmm. And this is why Jesus attacks the Pharisees at their heart so often. This is why he says, it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of his heart yeah. that pollutes him. Yeah, and, and the Torah is the way of life, but the right. Torah is Jesus. Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So even the Torah itself, could, you can argue then, is not covenant, it is testament, and it mm -hmm. always has been. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But outside of Christ, well, there we go. Yeah, we outside of Christ, you can only receive. It's contract law outside of Christ. Yeah, you can only receive it as law. Right. That's right. So the verba, the testamentum, there's the full weight of Jesus' death and the forgiveness of sins. So wherever the testament is, there's Christ and the forgiveness. And to your point then, when you put the bread in their mouth and say, this is the body of Christ given into death for your sin. And then you tip the chalice and say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. You are literally receiving your inheritance in concrete reality. Mm -hmm. There's nothing abstract about this whatsoever. You're here, God's preacher's here, the elements are here, the body and blood are here, the verb is here. Yeah, this is the kingdom of God. Yes, we've lost that to a certain extent. And the, and, and the king is truly present. I mean, that's yes in his body and blood, but but not in again not in just some kind of abstract philosophical sense no, the body of christ gathered around the body of christ yeah that's the only way you could be called the body of christ is actually to receive it <laughs> right mm -hmm. that is a strange thing when we abstract that yeah and, that, and you look around and go we are really everybody's made in the image of god that's another one of those abstractions for yes. most i think right yeah so nagel continues the words of absolution brought assurance of forgiveness and grace not only that there is forgiveness, but forgiveness, quote unquote, for you, guaranteed and imparted by the words of Christ spoken by the priest here and now. This external sign engendered a confidence which did not come from a consideration of God's attributes, and notably the playing off of mercy against righteousness, which was the crux of the trouble. Hmm. This is so important. Um, I've been on vacation this summer, and... So they've had uh, pulpit supply guys coming in, which mm -hmm. is fine. It's great. Good, faithful, retired guys. But the only thing that I've heard as far as feedback from my elders is, we're looking forward to you coming back because we haven't heard the for you in two months. Isn't that something? Yeah. How could you miss that? Well, it's there liturgically. I know. But but they're meaning in preaching specifically. They're meaning in preaching specifically, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that... I don't know. I mean, I, it's probably a way to avoid conflict is to just, it, and it's another way of abstracting, is to just um, speak enough generally. <laughs> well, we talk about Jesus and talk about what Jesus did. We just don't declare it as being present for you. Well, and I think it plays out the other way too, or we talk about sins. Right. But we don't talk about your sins. Yes. In fact, this is a rhetorical turn that will make any congregation uncomfortable is when you stop saying we and start saying you. Yeah. Yeah, I did it from day one and I know. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you you literally have to condition them to this. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to slide into that. I mean, if I do say we, it's where I acknowledge my own fault as a preacher. 
right? Sure, absolutely. You know, in the way that I fail in that vocation. Right. And then I'll include preaching, you know, or being a pastor as part of that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of the sins of vocation. Um, right. Yeah. But this is key then, is that what makes the testamentum testamentum for you? Mm-hmm. What makes the promise in Christ present tense? The for you. Well, you can't just like go exploring looking for an inheritance or just right? if you find yeah. one just grab it for yourself it doesn't you go, work that way go funeral hopping yeah <laughs> showing up at the reading of wills <laughs> it's like wedding crashers except you do funeral crashers right huh. it's like i'm just here for the, i'm just here to, to listen I, to the reading of the will <laughs> i'm here for the reading of the will i'm i'm here for the funeral dinner no right not usually all that great sorry <laughs> and you are just hoping that i'm in there just hoping there's something left there's over gonna, there's gonna be money handed out at the door on the way out <laughs> right exactly so he continues, Nagel, uh, righteousness has then neither its full weight as judgment, nor as freely given propter Christum. Luther found the sacraments to be sure ground for knowing God's gracious, and, oh, knowing God gracious and merciful. Mm-hmm. And this is the key point then, not to get past it. If you, if you drop the for you out of the sermon, hopefully you have the, you have the sacrament weekly. <laughs> yeah. Because then you will get it in in concrete, shoved into your mouth. This is for you, mm. hopefully, unless the pastor does a drive by and you don't get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just a, again an indifferent thing, but it also is a confession, right? Well, it's a strange thing because some guys will, you know, the blood, the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, and they'll you know they'll do the drive by, they distribute to three or four people in the process, right? Of that. But I've seen other pastors kind of riff or paraphrase. And not even declare the forgiveness of sins for you. This is the blood of Jesus. I've heard that a lot. This is the blood of Jesus. This is the blood of Jesus. Okay. And so <laughs> what's next? Mm. This is the body of Jesus. This is the body. I'm like, uh, I think you missed something. Our hymnal, Lutheran Service Book, is very careful. It'll say, if you use the long formula, it still includes for you. If you yes. use the short formula, it's the blood of Christ for you. Yes. Right? Or given for you or shed for you. So but, maybe that's, a, do you think that's a generational thing that, uh, that it was, or was it adopted by, by, because I only see it with older folks, like the older pastors. Um, I grew up with it and it wasn't okay. until I was an elder, uh, so post-college, so that's mm-hmm. early 2000s. Uh, my pastor just said, uh, guys, we're, everybody's going to say for you, you know, basically. Okay. Using sure. the shorter form, you know, the blood of Christ okay. shed for you. Okay. And he made us do it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never, I, and I just wasn't sensitive to it. But after he made the case mm-hmm. and said, "This is how we're going to mm-hmm. do it," um, sure. I really appreciated it. Yeah, personally, and then you know, even in uh, helping you know in distribution. Right. Uh, I was going to say, I don't think as a lay as laity, I wasn't even aware of it until I started reading Saze mm. on the sacraments. And Saze makes such a big point of it all the time: the language of testament, the four units in the gospel, and so forth, the proclamation. Because um, yeah, I think, again, that's a great point is when you don't grow up in the church necessarily, you're not conditioned to hearing it. But I came in as an adult and I was conditioned because the first church I went to and the second and third, it was just this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ, this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ. And I'm like, mm. that's just what you do it. And then I started reading Saze to start with and Luther and realized, well, they kept saying the for you is the thing. And yeah. then I started asking questions. But well, and the Catholicism does too. <laughs> does it really now? Yeah, mm. it does. <laughs> so yeah, it is an interesting point where you sometimes our liturgical rights, you know, um, save inad- us. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, or inadvertently depart from actually what we confess to be true. That too, you know, to say the catechism where it's sure. like, what's necessary uh, to receive this worthily. 
given and shed for you for the forgiveness, you, of, forgiveness sins. of sins. And then right. we drop those words somehow from our These two little part. words, for you require all hearts to believe. Yeah, for you. I mean, that's Luther's emphasis right there. Yeah. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. So back to the book. Luther found the sacraments to be sure ground for knowing God, gracious and merciful. This confidence was firmly anchored in the words of absolution and in the Eucharist in the words of gracious invitation and institution. And these most notably as testamentum. Even where this was not so clearly anchored, Christ was yet held to be dealing graciously in the sacraments. They are of the gospel and a gospel cleansed of legal functions. Ooh, that's a great turn of phrase. Yeah. They are of the gospel and a gospel cleansed of legal functions. This cleansing is concurrent with his grasp of evangelical righteousness and the death of Christ seen and uniquely redeeming. So he, he did, did make that point earlier, uh, Dr. Nagel did, with righteousness um, needs to be, it needs to have its full weight of judgment that we lack the righteousness that God requires, right? which was our text last week. Um, and we have to locate righteousness in the very person and body of Jesus Christ. Freely given, yeah. Freely given. For his sake. Because back to your earlier point, for Luther growing up and as a monk in his theological training, righteousness and Christ were separated from one another. This mm -hmm. is his, his battle, his personal battle of how can I be righteous as Christ is righteous when I find myself to be so unrighteous all the time? Yeah. It's a standard of judgment. It's a, as he says, um, it is a legal um, standard, essentially, that he is trying to live up to, but which he fails repeatedly to approach. And it needs to be that, or, right. or, or actually uh, the, the, the glory of Christ is diminished. You know, right, the gift, exactly. His giftedness. Right, you have the legal function, but then you have the evangelical righteousness, which is bound inseparably from the death of Christ. And I also think, uh, thinking practically here, ongoing conversation in, in, in my life, which is, you know, the frequency of the sacrament. Mm -hmm. and, and it can be received both ways, that it can be received as a judgment Yes, um, where where it's not being celebrated regularly, you mm -hmm. and, meaning weekly, uh, <laughs> yes, or, or even more frequently if you so desire, uh, that well we we're doing it wrong or we're we're not we're not doing it the way the Lord would have us do it, and and the answer of course is yes, actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He says as often as you eat this the, through Paul, right? Yeah. As often as you right. eat this bread and drink this cup, often frequently. I mean that's what it means. Uh, mm -hmm. on, but what Luther's pointing out here is that's not its proper work. That's not what it's there for. It's there for righteousness given. Yeah. So so that you could say it this way. Well, why wouldn't you have it frequently? Right. It's Are you gift. not unrighteous? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want forgiveness? Do you want life, salvation? This is right. where he locates himself in those ways for that purpose. And so right. why not? But there's the twist. It's too specific and it's too located. Ah, uh, uh, and it takes too long. <laughs> and it takes too long. It doesn't allow us enough wiggle room yeah. for our works. Yeah. yeah. And thus, it, and this is the key there, uniquely redeeming. That is, where else can I find this? Nowhere. Well, but why not? Because, yeah. What about baptism? Yeah, exactly. It's uniquely redeeming. Mm. He chooses mm. to locate himself specifically in pulpit, font, and altar. Yeah. Outside of which you can find God, I'm sure. But is it the God that you really want to find? Hmm. Hmm. Job's answer is no. <laughs> the hidden God is not the God that you want to preach, uh, preach, worship, yeah, pray to. 
Well, and I, I posted a quote um, on Facebook. I hardly ever do this, but I did one today. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Uh, but it was Bonhoeffer on prayer. You know, Bonhoeffer is a little bit uh, sketchy. messy, sketchy. Um, and I, but the quote is right: is that when when you pray uh, according to God's word, your you know your His words are your words, and then mm -hmm. um, your words become His words, and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, the problem is, is that praying apart from say the sacrament, what does that prayer look like? Sometimes it's like you know, destroy my enemies. God's you're, yeah. you're actually praying the wrath of God upon others, right? <laughs> which is which is not the gospel, by the way. Um, right. You know, and so you are being joined to a story. And yet enjoyable right? sometimes. <laughs> it's cathartic sometimes. Well, it is. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not beneficial, too, um, but it isn't but what the you, thing. What is that destruction, though? That's what I always ask. Mm. Because the destruction of my enemy is his conversion. <laughs> Ultimately, yeah, his Ultimately, death. Ultimately, that my enemy is converted and all of a sudden he becomes my brother. Right, and what happens when that, or when that happens, what happens to you? You have to die again a little bit. Right, <laughs> right, Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Every time my enemy comes to church, I die a little bit inside. <laughs> but it is. It, it's, it's true. Again, I think this is the importance of holding that tension of that distinction between when we pray for an earthly kind of justice, I am praying that you would literally destroy my enemy, crush him, kill mm -hmm. him, mm -hmm. wipe him off the face of the planet. If I pray that prayer evangelically, the destruction of my enemy is his conversion and repentance to my brother. Yeah. Right. And I would argue this is the point of the story from the get-go. Right, and one of the really incredible uh, conversations I heard here recently was in regards to the location of Mount Sinai. Now, I know it seems kind of abstract, and it's all this biblical study kind of thing, uh, but there are kind of two main competing theories: it's a northern route and a southern route through the mm -hmm. Sinai Peninsula. Um, and the southern route, I think, or I don't remember which route. The route through Midian is probably uh, not the most obvious, or and it does make the most sense. But the Sinai, or surrounding Sinai, are like Massa and Meribah, which they're mm -hmm. called, you know. Uh, there's all these cities, these way stations, and they're all around Sinai, and they're they're all actually sons of Cain, son of Esau. Right. They're like, oh, wait a minute, God gives his law in the midst of an unbelieving people. Right, and, and the nation of the, <laughs> Israel is surrounded by their enemies, and God yes. gives them gives them his word. Gives, uh, right. Uh, and then they he sends them into Cana. It's not like, or, you know, Canaan, it's not like a vacant. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Waiting, waiting for for residents, <laughs> he sends them in the midst of an unbelieving people. This is what's yeah. going on through the whole story, right? Uh, why for their conversion? Where there is literal annihilation of people. Well, there is annihilation, right? Um, there is both conversion and annihilation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which all goes to the whole matter of of piety, and that's another rabbit trail too. But right, let's go back to the book. Then, in the passage quoted above, Christ is the sure ground for knowing God, gracious and merciful specifically his blood, wounds, and death. Here there is certainty of the forgiveness of sins and the imparting of faith that receives, receives such blessing is by the gospel. So this is why Dr. Luther always counsels that when someone is dying, you hold the cross of Christ before their face. Mm -hmm. With the corpus on us, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. What, like a, a literal body of Christ. That was assumed nailed to the cross. And in those days it was, it's no longer assumed. Why? For this very reason, that Christ is the sure ground for knowing God gracious and merciful and specifically his blood, wounds, and death. Here there is the certainty of the forgiveness of sins and the imparting of faith that receives such blessing by the gospel. Especially on the deathbed, the last thing that you want to hear is, I really wish I would have done X, <laughs> right? Which you and I have both oh, heard. And aren't you proud of the life you lived? <laughs> right, right. 
is that you and I have both heard at deathbeds the confession of, I wish I had spent more time with my kids. I mm -hmm. wish I would have done more of this. Can I be forgiven for that? There's this thing I've been hiding all my life. I need to get it off my chest before I die. I can't, you know, so forth and so on. You're preaching Christ and the resurrection. You're preaching baptism. And they're doubling and tripling down on that thing that they can't get past. Yeah, in the face of that, uh, probably the most profound prayer for me, and we prayed every sacrament too, is the Nocdemitis, right? Right. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Exactly. Like, Wait a minute, I'm not at peace. You know, I'm fighting right. to, die, to not die here. Right. And I'm also, um, you know, remembering all my faults. Right. And he says, you are forgiven. <laughs> it would be nice, and I would love nothing else than if the gospel were magic. <laughs> and that when the gospel were preached, people's hearts were turned and they didn't have doubts and they didn't hide secrets. And I didn't have to hear those deathbed confessions. But it's not magic and you are sinful. And as a consequence. It, well, it does precisely that to preach forgiveness yeah. of sins is right. the proclamation of your sin. Right. It does that in fact. It's not magic. It's a fact. Mm -hmm. The hindrance, the obstruction is, well, you the sinner. Yeah. And, and the way that it then reminds you of your sin in order to right. forgive. Right. Hmm. So yeah, you can't back off that message. Yeah, you here's can't. Jesus dying for you. Right, right. <laughs> That's what he had to do. Right. Dying your death. Yeah. So that you don't have to be afraid of death because Jesus is now your death. Mm -hmm. So therefore he is also your resurrection. So Nagel continues here, there is certainty of the forgiveness of sins, the imparting of faith that receives such blessing by the gospel. This isn't a remarkable, this is in remarkable harmony with what, is, with what is now said of the mass. Quote, this is from Luther now, Christ has put the quintessence of the whole gospel in the words of this testament or sacrament, because the gospel is nothing other than the proclamation of divine grace and the forgiveness of all sin given us through Christ's passion. This is also what the words of this testament have in them, unquote. The whole gospel, down to the dust particle, the quintessence, are in the words of this testament or sacrament. So that what Luther is saying is, you want to know the gospel in, in its, I don't know, what, how you want to say it, the purest form? It's yeah. in the sacrament. In undistilled. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the sacrament. Where right. he gives himself to you to eat and to drink for your forgiveness. Right. Well, specifically the words. Yeah. The verba. Right. And uh, liturgically, um, sometimes I know we get accused of, uh, you know, being a Roman Catholic for singing the verba, the words of institution. Mm -hmm. But sure. I always remind folks, it's like, if you've been to a Roman church, they don't sing the verba. As a matter of fact, it's sometimes hard to find it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because it's buried deep within prayers to saints right. and, and uh, you know, prayers of thanksgiving. Well, apparently at one time they did that because people keep referencing it to me too. Hmm. I'm like, I, I've, I've never attended a mass where they actually did that. So Luther has a sing that was in his um, reform of the mass. He has mm -hmm. a sing those words in the same way that, we, that he had uh, them sing the gospel. Right. Because Which is also a pedagogical device. Exactly. You remember it. I, yeah. I asked, you know, I can ask the children to recite the words of institution and then mm -hmm. they have a hard time doing it. If I start right. singing it, mm -hmm. they join right in. They're like, right. wait, exactly. so you do know the words. Right. right. They're there. <laughs> yeah. But but Luther's also, uh, you know, his confession about music is that it, it beautifies the words. Correct. Correct. Yeah. It amplifies and beautifies. So. Unless you're like me and you can't carry a tune. No, I know. I, I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it's true. If you can't sing well, I, 
you can speak the words. It's okay. <laughs> again, accept your limitations. Again, yeah. it's not. Again, that's one another one of but those. But speak uh, them in a way. Um, maybe euphonically. Speak them you, euphonically. <laughs> well, that you believe it, right? I'm not saying you have to yell it or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't mind a slow, deliberate verba. I do. <laughs> You're in such a hurry. <laughs> I'm not in a hurry. I'm just saying. Do your job. Not Don't. affected, okay? You yeah, know no I mean. affectation. I mean, we all are affected, obviously. But again, these are indifferent matters. That's why I'm. <laughs> that's why I'm mocking. I'm mocking myself first okay. and foremost. All right, I should mock myself. Then I'm, too. I'm mocking my because I, I do. I we do divine service setting three every Sunday, and I do my best. And sometimes my organist likes to mock me by hitting a grace note, <laughs> <laughs> and I just look at her. I'm like, you know, I can't. I can't. I can. I can barely hit that. I'll hit that in the process of singing. Somewhere in there, I'll hit that C. But you know I can't hit that C to start with, which is even more disgusting because my wife is a classically trained singer. <laughs> it's like, uh, Opposites this is, attract. Look well, at that. this is the Lord basically putting a thorn in my side. <laughs> I want you to stand up before your congregation every Sunday and sing off key. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's it a thorn to? You or to her? To my whole congregation, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's okay. You know, it is. Again, everything done in faith is the worship of God. Even if it's uh, from our estimation, just not quite a right. Off key. The thing is, though, I'm always on key. As my wife says, you are always on key, but you're off key. So I'm definitely singing in the same register every Sunday. It's just my own register. Well, it's kind of like uh, Bach's B minor mass, right? It's the greatest choral work ever composed. Most right, people would right. argue. Uh, and part of me just wants to go to a performance by like a mediocre like regional yes. orchestra yeah. and choir where it's just yeah. not quite done as well as it is on the recordings. Be like, right. Okay, it is beautiful. Sometimes a blessed train wreck is just that. <laughs> keeps you real. Yes, 100%. Exactly, keeps you humble. Mm-hmm. So Nagel continues, yet the matter of this passage that we just read from Luther is not deduced from that above, but from the potent verba. Mm-hmm. For the sake of summary statement, Luther's threefold division of the mass may be useful. Part one, what it is. Part two, what it signifies or points to. Part three, its reception and use. Which again, is in the catechism. Yeah. This is how he breaks it down very simply. And we, So 10 years talk- after he says this, what's that? Did we say, I mean, this is similar to Augustine too, though, on sacrament. It is similar, yeah. Yeah. And again, Luther takes from Augustine what he finds useful mm-hmm. and then dispatches with what he does not. So this is definitely a formula that Luther uses because like I said, he does this essentially in 1520 where we're referencing like the Hebrews lectures. But then in the catechism about 10 years later, he still uses this formula. Mm-hmm. You know, we, what what is the baptism? I mean, we could import, oh, I don't know, I have a book here, Start With Why by Sinek, right? I mean, we could import yeah. that into the same, Absolutely. same way, you know, how and uh, why. And what mm-hmm. would be the other thing? Or it wouldn't be how, it'd be what, why, and how. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. use those words. And as I've said, there's lots of people that can tell you what we do on Sundays. There's lots of people that can tell you how we do it. Mm. But there's very few people that can tell you why. (laughs) But as as, uh, Nagel points out, and Luther clearly understood, it's right there in the words. Right. It's in the actual words themselves. For you, for the forgiveness of sins. That's why. Yes. Uh, So we're coming up on 55 minutes, and then he's going to dive into this threefold formula and kind of pick at it. Actually, part one is about, it goes on for quite a long ways. So maybe we'll... Yeah, that's, do that a good, next that's a good week? place to hold off. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, so that's a good introduction, I think, to where Nagel's going with Luther's understanding of Christ and the Lord's Supper, and this section, the threat of works in particular. 
So we'll come back next week then and we'll dive into what it is. Yeah. What it is. What is it? Yeah, what is it? Boss is done. It is it. It is it. It is what it is. Mena. So I hope you enjoyed that. Again, thank you as always for your time and attention. And uh, come back brand new episode next week. And uh, what else? Anything else? Not forgetting? No. <laughs> that was very assertive. Thank you. I'll uh, try. So You want some music right. to help you out? Thank you, brothers and sisters. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Peace. There you go.